I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Someone has said, if you take all the people who fell asleep in church and lay them end to end, they would be more comfortable. Well, as we approach the sixth commandment, don't get too comfortable. It's found in verse 13. You shall not murder. You say, well, I think we can skip this commandment. I mean, it's so obvious. And anyway, it really doesn't have anything to do with us. In fact, you may be looking at this commandment and thinking this would be a good chance to catch up on the fourth commandment and get a little rest. So let me preface this message by alerting you to the fact that this is a pertinent command. This commandment is pertinent for our nation. We pride ourselves in being a sophisticated, civilized society, but when it comes to violence, we are barbarians. The second leading cause of death in our country is murder. And the number of violent deaths in America is 20 times that of Western Europe and 40 times that of Japan. The United States has earned the dubious title, the most violent nation on earth. And not only is this commandment pertinent for our nation, it is also pertinent for our families. We have said that the emphasis of the Ten Commandments is family values. And you may be saying, well, what does this commandment have to do with family values? Well, where did the first murder take place? In the family. When Cain killed his brother. And that's still the pattern today. Most of the violence and most of the murders in our country happen between family members. Domestic violence is at an all-time high. But not only is this commandment pertinent for our society and pertinent for our families, it is pertinent for you as an individual. I mean, you may be sitting there saying, well, what does this commandment have to do with me? I'm not, I mean, I'm not a professional hitman. I don't even own a gun. I'm not planning to kill anybody. Well, maybe you are not going to kill anybody with your actions, but did you know that you can kill people with your attitudes? You can break this commandment not only when you commit homicide with your hands, but when you commit homicide in your heart. So pay attention today. This commandment is for you. Now the sixth commandment is very simple and straightforward. Contains only four words. In fact, in the Hebrew, it contains only two words. No murder. But as simple as this commandment is, it's often misunderstood and often misused. And so this morning I would like to look at it from two angles. Number one, what it doesn't mean. And number two, what it does mean. First of all, let's look at what it doesn't mean. And let me mention five things that it doesn't mean. Number one, it's not prohibiting killing animals. That's obvious later in the same chapter in verse 24. God tells the children of Israel to kill sheep and oxen as sacrifices. God makes it very clear that there's a distinction between human life and animal life. 
Now, that's not to say that it's all right to abuse animals or it's all right to kill somebody else's animal. In Leviticus 24, 21, we read, whoever kills an animal must make restitution. If you killed somebody else's animal, you had to pay for it or you had to replace it. But that's not what the Sixth Commandment is talking about. Many animals are intended to be killed. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 3, God said, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. After church today, you can take your pastor out for a steak. You don't have to be a vegetarian unless you want to. Second thing that it is not is that it is not prohibiting capital punishment. That's clear in the very next chapter. In chapter 21 and verse 12, God calls for the death penalty. In fact, in that chapter alone, God commands capital punishment on seven different occasions. And that's something He established very early on. In Genesis 9, 6, He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. He stated it this way in Leviticus 24, 17, If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. And the equation he establishes there is very simple, a life for a life. You say, well, that's a nice principle, but who's supposed to carry it out? Well, God has given that responsibility to the government. In Romans 13, 4, it says of the government, It is a minister of God to you for good, and it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. The government is God's minister, and it serves as an avenger to bring wrath upon those who do evil. And Paul says the government doesn't wear a sword just because it looks good. It bears the sword for a reason, and you don't use a sword to paddle people. The sword is the instrument of life and death. And God has given that power to the government. Now, governments are not all perfect. Governments don't always do what is right. But they do keep law and order. And in order to bring about law and order, God has given them the authority of capital punishment. Now, several things are clear in Scripture about capital punishment. Number one, God intended it to be just. In Deuteronomy 17.6, it says, No one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. To ensure justice, God required a plurality of witnesses. You couldn't be put to death on a he said, she said case. And beyond that, God required that the witnesses shouldn't be passive. In other words, you couldn't come in and pick somebody out of a lineup behind a one-way glass and then go home and forget about it. Because in Deuteronomy 17.7, it says, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death. The witnesses had to be so convinced that this man was guilty that they were willing to be the first ones to throw the stones in executing him. And so God intended for it to be just. Secondly, God intended for it to be swift. In the Old Testament times, there were no delays. They took that individual outside the city and they stoned him to death immediately. When President William McKinley was assassinated in 1901, his assassin was executed 53 days later. Could that happen today? No. 
By the time someone goes through all the appeals processes and is finally executed, we've forgotten why. When Ted Bundy was finally executed after killing all those innocent women, it was 11 years after the crime. And who paid for those 11 years? We did. You see, that's not justice. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, justice postponed is justice denied. And we are denying an awful lot of justice in this country. Under our criminal justice system, the average amount of time that an individual actually serves when he gets a life sentence is eight years. And one of the arguments today against capital punishment is that it doesn't deter criminals. Well, it determines the one who is executed. His criminal activity is completely deterred. And then let me add a third thing. God intended for it to be just. God also intended for it to be swift. But thirdly, God allowed for exceptions. Cain did not get the death penalty for killing Abel. David did not get the death penalty for killing Uriah. Jesus intervened on behalf of a woman who deserved to be stoned to death in John chapter 8. And so God allowed for exceptions. But the death penalty was the just punishment. And the sixth commandment is not saying there should be no capital punishment. Third thing it's not. It's not prohibiting going to war. God sent Israel to war throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in Jeremiah 51.20, he calls them his war club. And on many occasions, he ordered them to completely kill the enemy. And so the sixth commandment is not a ban on war. In Ecclesiastes 3.8, it says there is a time for war and a time for peace. God makes it clear that there are some things worth fighting for and some things worth dying for. Fourth thing that this is not. It's not prohibiting self-defense. And that's clarified two chapters over in Exodus 22.2. It says, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. If an intruder breaks into your house threatening the safety of your family, you don't have to be a pacifist. You can defend yourself. Now, I don't own a gun, but I do own a baseball bat. And I keep one under my bed. And I've got a pretty good swing. And what he's saying here is that the thief takes his life into his own hands when he enters that window. Fifth thing this commandment is not talking about, it's not prohibiting accidental killing. The Bible makes a clear distinction between accidental killing and willful killing. In fact, in Numbers chapter 35, God established cities of refuge in Israel. If you accidentally killed someone, if you were swinging your axe and the axe head came off and hit somebody and killed them, you were to flee to one of these cities of refuge and find safety there. So this commandment is not talking about killing animals. It's not talking about capital punishment. It's not talking about killing in war. It's not talking about killing in self-defense. It's not talking about accidental killing. You say, what is it talking about? Well, let me suggest four things that this commandment includes. Number one, 
would be homicide. I only have to say the names of these towns. Pearl, Mississippi, West Paducah, Kentucky, Springfield, Oregon, Jonesboro, Arkansas, Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, and you cringe a little bit because that brings up images that are forever etched in our collective memories. Eleven students and two teachers were murdered and 40 other students were wounded. And the thing that makes those events so appalling was the setting they took place at school. But you know, with a lesser amount of publicity, that same thing is happening on streets and in houses all across this country. Gang involvement is up. Drive-by shootings are commonplace. In fact, more kids die from violence in America than from illness. And I guess that really shouldn't surprise us because our children are being programmed to believe that human life has very little value. What are we taught in school? That our existence is the result of inorganic matter plus time plus chance. That millions and millions of years ago, we crawled out of a primordial puddle. Uh, in fact, the, the, the message is that we were once frogs and now we have become princes. Now, if you tell that in nursery school, it's called a fairy tale. If you tell it in the classroom, it's called science. And the problem with that message is that it's telling our kids that they are an accident. The only difference between you and a monkey is that you've been around longer. Now, on that basis, it's no wonder our kids are devaluing life. And not only do they hear that at school, but then when they go out in their car and they turn the radio on, they listen to rock music. Now, I'm not going to get down on rock music because I have nothing against rock music personally. Uh, I sing it in my shower. But parents, have you noticed the names of rock groups today? There's a whole uh, uh, type of music today called death metal. And here's some of the groups. Internal Bleeding, Coroner, Cannibal Corpse, Megadeth, The Badly Decomposed, Slayer, Obituary, Six Feet Under. Now, what's the message? Well, I can tell you it's not the value of human life. By the time the average American child has hit sixth grade, they have already witnessed over 8,000 murders on television. And they have watched over 100,000 acts of violence. They are being desensitized. John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmers and Ted Bundy are part of our national vocabulary. 24 Americans were killed in the Gulf War. During that exact same period of time, in the city of Dallas alone, 52 Americans were killed. What's that tell you? It's safer to go to war than to walk the streets of our cities. Every 22 minutes, an American is stabbed, shot, beaten, or strangled to death. That is the highest homicide rate in the world. The Sixth Commandment is as pertinent today as ever. You shall not murder. Let me tell you a second thing it includes, and that would be suicide. 
Suicide is now the number two cause of death among college students. It's the number three cause of death among high school students. In fact, more children are killed today by suicide than by traffic. I found seven cases of suicide in the Bible. The most familiar would be King Saul and Judas Iscariot. That's not real great company. Suicide is self-murder. You say, well, that's not murder. I mean, it's my life. I have a right to live it like I want to, and I have to, a right to take it if I want to. Well, no, you don't have that right. Romans 14, 7 says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. God gave you your life, and only he has the right to take it. In fact, did you know that the Bible tells us that God has predetermined the exact number of days you will live? Job 14.5 says, Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. God has determined the very number of days you will live. You cannot exceed that and you are not to short-circuit that. Now, suicide usually happens at the deepest, darkest bleakest time of life. But suicide is never an answer. It is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And one of the most common questions I get asked on this subject is, can you commit suicide and still go to heaven? Some people say no. Because some people consider this an unpardonable sin. The logic being that since a person who commits suicide doesn't live to confess it, they die with sin unconfessed. Well, that's faulty logic. In fact, that's faulty theology. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul deals with the church at Corinth and they were meeting for the Lord's Supper and some people were getting drunk and some people were carrying on and being selfish. And it says in verse uh, 30 of that chapter, many are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now he's not talking about sleeping in church there. Some people were abusing the Lord's Supper and God took them. But in Scripture, whenever God talks about the death of a believer, He doesn't say they died. He says they what? They slept. So here were people that God took out of this world. Did they confess their sin? No. That's why God took them. Where did they go? They went to heaven. See, my going to heaven is not dependent on whether I confess every sin I ever commit. My going to heaven is dependent on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross and my faith which I have placed in Him. When I fail to confess my sins on a daily basis, it has a great deal to do with my power and my peace and my influence and my testimony and my rewards, but it has nothing to do with my salvation. Suicide is as forgivable as any other sin. But having said that, let me say this. Suicide is a violent offense against yourself because you are made in the image of God. And suicide is a violent offense against God who made you and bought you. And suicide is a violent offense against the survivors. In fact, it is the ultimate act of selfishness.
Third thing I would include under this commandment is what's called mercy killing today or euthanasia. Dr. Kevorkian is making this popular. It's causing the death of someone because of deformity or old age or incurable disease. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is a distinction between mercy killing and mercy dying. Mercy dying is when you refuse to hook someone up to artificial equipment that keeps them alive. Mercy dying is when you choose to unplug the equipment because somebody is brain dead. Mercy dying is when you choose to have compassionate care on a person who's dying. That's different from mercy killing. Mercy killing is causing the death of someone because either you or they have de de determined that their life is of no value. Job 12.10 says, In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Only God has the right to determine when I stop living. There was a guy a number of years ago who thought he should have the right to determine who was fit to live and who wasn't. His name was Adolf Hitler. Fourth thing I would include under this commandment is abortion. And I gathered together some statistics on abortion, and it was rather shocking to me. 26% of all pregnancies in America now end in abortion. That's one out of four. Since 1973, 30 million Americans have been put to death through abortion. We have a million and a half abortions a year. That averages out to 4,000 times a day an unborn child is killed in the womb of its mother. And 97% of all abortions are not because of rape or incest or because the life of the mother is threatened. They are simply because the mother decided it was inconvenient. Now one of the questions that's raised on this subject is, when does life begin? Does it begin at conception or does it begin at birth? Well, David answered that question in Psalm 139. He said, Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret. Did you notice the pronouns David uses to describe himself? I, me, my. It's not a blob of tissue. He's a person in the womb. In fact, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, we're told that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He was not a blob of tissue. A blob of tissue cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit. Scientists today have given titles to the various stages of life in the womb. When the egg is recently fertilized, it's called a zygote. During the first three months, it's referred to as an embryo. And during the last six months, it's called a fetus. And the other question that has arisen today is whether one stage of life is more valuable than another. We know when Jesus was a zygote, when Jesus was a recently fertilized egg in the womb of his mother, he entered in the womb into the room, and it tells us that John the Baptist, who was a six-month-old fetus, leaped for joy. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 43, it tells us that Elizabeth addressed Mary 
as the mother of my Lord. She doesn't call her the potential mother of my Lord. She doesn't call her the mother of my potential Lord. She is the mother of my Lord. If Mary at that point in time had gotten an abortion, she would have aborted the eternal Son of God. You see, abortion is not a decision involving one person. It's a decision involving two persons. It's one person taking the life of another. In his medical school class, a professor posed this medical and ethical situation. He said, here's the family history. The father has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis. They already have four children. The first is blind, the second has died, the third is deaf, and the fourth has tuberculosis. And the mother has gotten pregnant again. The parents come to you for advice. They'll do whatever you say. They'll have an abortion if you suggest it. What do you say? And so he divided the students up into little groups for consultation, and the groups came back all recommending abortion. Congratulations, said the professor. You just took the life of Beethoven. Abortion is not only taking the life of another person. It is trying to usurp the sovereignty of God. And some people say abortion and euthanasia are matters of choice. Right, they are. God's choice. You say, well, why is there so much killing going on? Why in this sophisticated, educated society is not murder decreasing? Well, I can point to two factors. Number one is the heart of man. It hasn't changed in 8,000 years since Cain killed Abel. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. First factor is the heart of man. The second factor is the purpose of Satan. And his purpose has not changed either. His goal is to kill man. Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. Satan does everything he can to bring about the death of man. In fact, it's interesting. If you take the word live and turn it around, it spells evil. If you take the word lived and turn it around, it spells devil. And that's fitting because Satan is antithetically opposed to life. Well, and why does Satan hate life? Because he hates man. And why does he hate man? Because man is made in the image of God. He hates God, and he can't get to God, so he goes after man, and he tries to kill man, and he's doing a great job. People are killing each other. They are killing themselves. They are killing their unborn children. They are killing devalued adults. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning experiencing the guilt of murder. Maybe you've killed somebody. Maybe you've tried to commit suicide. Maybe you've had an abortion or you've talked somebody else into having an abortion. I've got good news for you this morning. This sin is just as forgivable as any other sin. In fact, did you know that most of the Bible was written by three murderers? Moses, David, and Paul. Each killed at least one other person. 
And that really underlines the truth that this is a message of grace. It doesn't matter where you've been. It just matters who you know and where you're going. Now I want to speak to one other group this morning. And that's those of you who are sitting there saying, well, I'm not feeling very convicted today because I've never killed anybody. Well, I don't want to leave you out. So, in closing, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Here Jesus explains and expounds on this sixth commandment. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now what's Jesus saying? If you're angry with your brother, you're guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of murder. Why? Because you're wishing that he was dead. Clarence Darrow once said, I've never killed anyone, but I've read an awful lot of obituaries with glee. That's the way Jesus would apply the sixth commandment. In order to be guilty of murder, you don't have to shed blood. You can do it in your heart. John said it this way in 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Because you see, that's where it starts. It doesn't start with shooting a gun or swinging a knife. It starts in your heart with that anger and that hatred. But Jesus isn't finished. Look again at verse 22. He says, And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the supreme court. Now, Raka was an Aramaic word that meant empty head. Uh, the contemporary equivalent would be numbskull, nitwit, blockhead, idiot. When in deadly earnest, I call someone by a derogatory name that indicates that they are nobody, I have committed murder. And then he goes on in verse 22 and says, And whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. The Greek word fool there is, is the word moros, from which we get moron. But the word really had nothing to do in the first century with IQ. It had more to do with moral character. David used it in Psalm 14.1 when he said, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so, Raka expresses contempt for a person's head. You idiot. Fool expresses contempt for a person's character. You are a moral moron. And Jesus is saying, when you use those words of contempt, you have broken the sixth commandment. There's a scene in the TV show Seinfeld where the characters are discussing the way high school guys torment each other. One of the ways is by using the atomic wedgie. And when Elaine expresses shock at their cruelty, they say, well, what do girls do? And she answered this way, we just pick somebody and make fun of her until she develops an eating disorder. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here takes a split second to kill someone with a gun. When you use words, it takes a little longer, but it's the same heart attitude. Is Jesus serious about this? 
Look at verse 23. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. If you're worshiping, Jesus says, and you realize that you are harboring thoughts of anger against your brother, or you have said words of contempt against your brother, drop what you're doing and go to your brother. You see, reconciling that relationship takes precedence over worship. Why? Because God doesn't want feigned worship. You cannot worship God while you've got a knife in your brother's back. You cannot worship God with a heart that's full of hatred. And so God says, get real with your brother, and then you can get real with me. Now, in the honesty of your heart this morning, there may be some of you who need to get up right now and talk to somebody. And while you're thinking about that, we're going to close by singing hymn number 485. Real short, little chorus. But a real honest prayer to the Lord Jesus into my heart. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing it together. I don't know how God may have spoken you, to you this morning or what your need may be, uh, or even if you would like to join with this congregation, I'm going to give you the opportunity, however God may have spoken to you today, to come as we sing this short course together, 485.